I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Anta. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month we're talking about the newest Godzilla movie, Takashi Yamazaki's Godzilla Minus One. Before we offer a few thoughts on Zack Snyder's new space opera for Netflix, Rebel Moon, A Child of Fire, Part 1. And here we go. In Ishiro Honda's 1954 classic Godzilla, the giant reptile monster was an avatar of nuclear war, an embodiment of Japan's national fear that had yet to dissipate like the nuclear clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. He was a big lizard that crunched buildings and used his atomic breath to torch mountainsides, but he was also a symbol as much as a physical threat. Takashi Yamazaki's Godzilla Minus One, the latest film in the long-running kaiju franchise from Toho Studios, takes a cue from Honda's original film and returns the lizard to his symbolic origins. In Yamazaki's film, Godzilla is a living, breathing reminder of the cost of war and the regrets over past failures for the Japanese nation at large, but especially for the young war veteran Koichi Shikishima, played by Ryonosuke Kamiki. In the film's opening, Koichi abandons his mission as a kamikaze pilot, only to run into Godzilla in the aftermath. Koichi survives Godzilla, just as he survives the war, but is tortured by the notion that he's a coward. All his subsequent actions in Godzilla Minus One are an attempt to rectify that fact, to make up for pulling away from his kamikaze mission in the dying days of World War II, when he knew that his sacrifice would be meaningless for losing Japan. Koichi tries to get over his regret by building a life with Noriko and Akiko, fellow orphans he meets in the ruins of Tokyo, as well as by working as a naval minesweeper. But Koichi's conscience, and that pesky lizard Godzilla, just won't let well enough alone. The past won't rest in Godzilla Minus One, which animates every moment in the film. The clarity of vision in both Godzilla's role and Koichi's domestic life gives the film its clear character motivations and sympathetic portraits. We care about these people and hope for the best for them, which is essential because Godzilla is going to destroy their world. This investment in character pays off in the film's action scenes, which are clear and exciting, with escalating stakes and coherent cause and effect that builds suspense at every juncture. Yamazaki's film succeeds because it treats every detail, from the characters to the action, with the same attention to detail, and it favors clarity at every juncture of its storytelling. It clearly lays out the emotional turmoil that Koichi suffers, and takes time to depict the motivations for his subsequent actions, both in order to atone for his past and to protect the present he's made with Noriko. It also clearly lays out the plan to combat Godzilla, with a naval plot to trap the monster and submerge him rapidly into the depths of the ocean. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. I was surprised by how engaging Godzilla Minus One is, both emotionally and viscerally. But I'm curious whether you guys think the same. Were you as impressed as I was? Anton, what did you think of Godzilla Minus One? I thought it was good. I thought it was a very competent blockbuster. I'm not someone who's deeply invested in kaiju fandom. And so I don't come at it with like um, a lot of sort of built up expectations or anything. I more saw it on a whim. Um, But I did enjoy it. And I think you point out a lot of 
how it's just it's an all-around well-made movie well acted the the storyline and the characters are have more in, are invested with more um seriousness and sort of nuance and attention than i would expect from you know the sort of american equivalent of this kind of a movie um so I, I had a good time watching it. What about you, Anders? I, I liked it quite a bit. I, I thought it was, as Anton said, uh, a really good blockbuster, which is all even more impressive given, uh, you know, that the budget isn't quite as big as like most like American films uh, of, of similar quality. It, it's I think it, it looked really great. The, the special effects were good. The production values. But uh, what I was most surprised by that was that I was engaged by the human story. Um, uh, this sort of post-war tale of Koichi trying to come to grips with his, uh, you know, experiences during the war. I thought the film. There's some scenes that are, that to me, were like uh, quite moving. Like it, it is that sort of. What I liked is how it combines the kaiju film, the monster film, with the uh, kind of like period. It's not a period. It would have been contemporary melodramas, like almost like, you know, some of the scenes could have been like almost like out of like a little scene from Ozu or something like that. Right. In that mm-hmm. post-war, mm-hmm. uh, era. Um, and especially characters coming to grips with their, uh, emotion, their feelings, but in a really like that, that classically Japanese way. Right. Uh, uh yeah. so, uh, I really like all that stuff. Um, and it, to me, it, it actually came together quite well, right? Like in the end, like, uh, it, but it's uh, it's also an interesting film because it, it is so thematically, it, it deals with the themes around like uh, Japan's feelings of shame and guilt around the end of World War II and all that transposed onto the character of Koichi, right? Um, but I think it ends up, you know, suggesting that sometimes the, those martial values of, uh, sacrifice and like you know in the name of nation and stuff like that are less important than the the connections to people and that that injunction to live right like to me was like really really interesting so it, I think it is actually not just a uh, you know enjoyable monster movie which it is there's some great great shots um, we can talk about like some of the, the Godzilla action like I don't know I, I just love scenes of like when it, this movie gives Godzilla some of his scale, even though he's not as big as in some of the other recent ones, like Shin Godzilla, like you get a sense of scale. Like a shot of Godzilla swimming under a battleship under the water. Love that kind of stuff, right? It just ugh, it gives him this that he's it's everything is always um, showing Godzilla in relation to something else on screen because he's a constant yeah. threat, right? He's coming. Yeah. So you see the destroyer out there, and you're like, like this movie's really good in um, like not to jump too far into it, but the movie's very competent and incompetent in a way like i don't want to say that i'm underselling by saying competent but it's just like it knows to hit all the marks in an action scene about how to invest us and then to make like the scene swell within a moment right because people i think nowadays treat action scenes as it's it's more of like something to like impress you but it's a static experience right it doesn't like go up and down and this movie understands that there's like a build a natural sequential filmmaking within an action scene where you like set the stakes and then you build the stakes throughout the scene right and so you get stuff you you get these scenes of like you know the first they're out in the minesweeper and godzilla shows up and they're like holy crap guys like we're cooked and they're trying to shoot him they're like trying to do anything to stop him and they're chasing and, you know, the that's, boat there, yeah. that's where they get the little scene of like put the mine in him and he shoots the mine in his mouth and it blows a hole in him and it's like that seems to hurt him but it he regenerates it doesn't matter but then the destroyer shows up at the last minute and like blasts godzilla out of the sky and you're like oh man like that's so sweet 
but the scene doesn't end there, right? It like Godzilla comes back up and just <laughs> just dis- demolishes the destroyer. But the way that like the pace and like it, you know the it's not like super surprising, but it's very satisfying to see the way that it like hits these junctures where you're like, we think we're saved. Oh no, all is lost. And it comes back and then like hits you in the end. It's just, it's really entertaining. It's not just, yeah. So it's not just competence in terms of technical filmmaking skill. It's competence in understanding how to use the, the conventions of the sort of contemporary blockbuster, but having a sense of pacing and variation in order to actually introduce narrative and emotional, uh, you know experience and variance into the film which is frankly something that a lot of films nowadays don't do they think well so it's competent like storytelling both in terms storytelling within the action sequences as well as within um what are often sort of seen as sort of the extraneous extra material around action scenes and in that sense it does remind me of you know spielberg because within each action sequence it, it tells a story. It's not just a series of like action beats or sort of like um, things happening. There's actually sort of, I think you described well, sort of the, the flow and movement within those action sequences and the way it also, um, without giving away the ending, like it, it's the kind of thing in the final action scene there, there is a, a climactic moment, which is satisfying, even though you kind of anticipate it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a nice quality when you can sort of like, the, the arc is sort of completed and you sort of kind of are hoping or expecting that to happen. And then it does happen. It's satisfying rather than a letdown of being like, Oh, well that's just sort of flat. Exactly. Me, like it does that well. It understands genre conventions, understands filmmaking, ex- the way you set up expectations and that there can be a satisfaction in experiencing what you expect, not just in subversion and, and things like that. Right. Um, it's interesting, you know, like the sort of Spielbergian aspect, cause I, when I, in preparation for this, I was looking at, uh, Yamazaki's, uh, filmography and his like Wikipedia bio. Cause I didn't know much about him to be honest. I, I haven't seen any of his other films and he does mention specifically that, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, and star Wars were the two things, things that inspired him to become a filmmaker. So, huh. uh, yeah. it sounds like he's learned some lessons. So, yeah. And he's, you know, he's talked about jaws as a, big influence yeah, on the scene on the boat the... you talked about is oh yeah, totally draws. and the way the ca- and also the character interactions on exactly the boat. um yeah well it's the idea yeah. that like if you invest in the characters and makes the action scenes more exciting and if the action scenes are you invest actual stakes in them the characters are more credible because you care about them than and you're like worrying about whether they're going to die or not. Right. And so it's like both sides of the film feed each other. And then I think that's kind of the characteristic of Godzilla minus one that really like that, that is the central success of the film is that the two sides of the movie work. It's not one of these action films where the action's good and the characters are kind of bland and boring or where you're like, well, you know, that was some nice dramatic scenes, but I wish the action scenes were exciting. It, it mm-hmm. actually hits both elements. And I couldn't really um, see this movie working if, if it wasn't in unison because Godzilla does work as that real physical threat in the moment for these characters, but also like he embodies all the symbolic things as well, right? Like he is the specter of war who's returned. He is the nuclear Holocaust that lies like, as a threat over Japan. He is the idea of like the monster who will forever cow Koichi for his cowardice, right? Like it's, he's all those things. 
And so the characters have like a personal investment to combat them, but also a societal investment. And yeah. I, I think there's a great scene in this movie, um, Anders, when like you mentioned how the film really is tapping into the idea of Japan's like shame over the war. Yeah. Because Koichi has shame over being a kamikaze pilot and failing that. But also everybody in this movie is also suffering from this idea that Japan lost the war. They lost it. They're like humbled by their American conquerors they constantly are talking about macarthur and like the americans don't want us to do this the americans don't want us to do that we're completely at their mercy at this point but there's also a kind of almost like um implicit acknowledgement from the characters that they were also losing or like they were fighting on the side of a lost cause like a cause that wasn't worthy of anything Right. right exactly yeah and but then you get the scene where it's all the naval men who decide that they're gonna you know, we used to be soldiers and we, we, we were, we were, we were fighting a war that wasn't worth fighting for, but this is maybe a cause that we can finally do something. And they all kind of rally together. And there's, it's funny because it's these characters that you only get little snippets of, but the camaraderie that's actually built there is very meaningful, especially during the final action scene, which is this big naval um, strategy to like trap Godzilla. And the characters are like so invested in it that you get these little ebbs and flows of characters that we only know a little bit, but you're actually invested in their like bonds with each other. And they're like, I don't know. It's just, this movie does a good job of even having like the, uh, the Admiral character where you're like, Mm -hmm. this is like a very like respectable, like man, like it's just like, it's interesting how the film does something almost similar to say like Top Gun Maverick or something where it makes you like, reinvest in kind of these so-called corny aspects of like heroism in a film where you're like oh yeah like that's that's a guy i can cheer for (laughs) yeah and and that's given like japanese audiences somebody that they can cheer for interestingly in a period context without valorizing the imperial military endeavor so it is a kind of recuperation in a weird way well remember it's also a civilian like they're they choose as free men to do this. They're like it's very clear. It's not a military exercise. It's not a government exercise. It's men who have this experience who are going to com- join forces to do what is right and to in again implicitly right the wrongs that they were doing in the past. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's a movie that yeah it go it goes one step further than just the the shame of defeat, and it it begins to it sort of um, criticize the the whole imperial Japanese project, because I think it goes out of its way at multiple points in the movie to say, you know, the government lies to us. The government um, is not trustworthy, but then it, but then it wants, so it wants to build up the sort of the nobility and uh, potential and heroism of the Japanese people while distancing the Japanese people from sort of the, uh, the imperial, Japanese right. government because, so that because you can have this in in a sort of a post-war environment without sort of doing I think something that sometimes is being sort of criticized where it's just like you focus on sort of the the Japanese victimhood of being yeah. the victims of the atomic bomb Absolutely. but not also the perpetrator so it, I thought it was it like it, it was actually a Japanese movie that's starting to um, grapple on multiple yeah. levels with this stuff it's a, there is a rarity in that I think that some of that, I mean, we could get into some of the, um, like why that also might resonate today, right? In an era when people have distrust of like 
institutions and things like yes. that, which is yeah. something in yeah. Japan that is a serious issue, right? Given the recent politics, the the distrust in government, you know, that culminated in like the assassination of Abe last year and things like that, right? So, uh, and even the, the way the government there handled COVID, things like that, there is a lot of like underlying Japanese uh, anger at the government and things like that. Um, yeah, but I think contextualizing it in 1947, because like that, I guess that's like we could maybe sh- shift here for a minute and think of it like that title, like Godzilla minus one, right? Yeah, the title is like going yeah, I've been trying to sort of pick through it and be like, because okay, it's what, like, what does the, this mean? The original Godzilla is 1954, right? But this is like kind of retelling, but like, what if we went back one step further? Because the history of Japan after the war is that like until the, um, the, the fifties, they did not even have their own government, right? They were occupied yeah, by occupied. Yeah. the Americans. MacArthur was, was essentially the, yeah. essentially the, the ruler of Japan. Um, and so at this point in which the movie is set, you can actually deal with some of those things because Japan is only a bunch of free people and like an occupying force. And yeah. They, the government is like sort of sec, sort of a, a puppet government in a sense, and that, well, right? And that explains why when they when they say things like, "Well, the Americans don't want to do this because they don't want to antagonize the, the Russians," and I feel, or so yeah, like the Soviets. And some people in the audience might just be like, "Well, why are why are the Americans sort of determining this? Because they're actually they control the whole yeah." There's a military <laughs> occupation that's actually in '47 running the country. Um, but then also, I think this also the this being so close to the war, right? Forty seven, not fifty four, also means that um, yeah. I think Aaron, you did a good job of starting to tease out like what is the meaning and the symbolism of Godzilla within this movie, and it's not just the atomic bomb in that in that stuff. It's like the it's the larger war. Uh, well, think about like the, the the scene where Koichi goes back to Tokyo and he, he yeah. you know, he, he oh, talks man. to his neighbor and like, it's like, where am I, where were my parents? And it's like, oh, that's where the house used to be. And it, it has the matter of fact talking about the firebombing that just yeah. destroyed the entirety of Tokyo. And it's one, it's one of those historical episodes that Japan doesn't forget at all. But in our, our like Western history, we, we gloss over it. Like the fact that through conventional bombing, we burnt Tokyo to the ground and we killed a hundred thousand people. Like it's, yeah. it's one of those like war atrocities that it's like Dresden. We, we just kind of don't really talk about. Yeah. And um, it gets overshadowed and pos- forgotten yeah. in light of, uh, or in the shadow of the atomic bomb. Right. And possibly because of the architecture of Japan, it was more even total destruction yeah, because wooden, of wooden houses and, stuff, and things like that. Like, I, that scene when he's walking through the rubble, like I think some viewers who might not, if you'd missed the cue that this is Tokyo, people would assume that this is the rubble of the nuclear attack, right? Like every building is flattened. What's amazing is that within 15 years, Tokyo is basically rebuilt, right? Even by the time of the the, the first Godzilla film uh, in 54, right? So this is a rare period where you don't actually see a lot of movies set in that like immediate aftermath and, and rubble and the absolute destruction uh, there. And I think that that is very interesting to me. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it, it really resonates. It's, and it's something that leans into, um, you know, like the, the post-war period in Japan in film, um, they weren't really dealing with that 
the de- the destruction of the rebel within like conventional dramas. They were dealing within a genre, right? It was the Nikatsu noir stuff. It was those like you even get it in um, Akira Kurosawa films like like Stray Dog and stuff. This idea that the post-war Japan, specifically Tokyo, was this black market network because it was yeah. under American occupation. It didn't work as a government, uh, like, and as a functioning society. So everything was like what you could hard scrabble together. What could you like sell or barter or like make some deals and add, get the food, get the, like build your place up. And so the fact that the city like rebuilds itself is kind of this remarkable fact because <laughs> it's just One so, my- it was so devastating. Yeah. One of my favorite films from that is set in that era, in the American occupation era, is uh, Imamura's uh, Pigs and Battleships. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't watched but it it's, yet. I need it's, to. it's kind of a, a bit of a Yakuza noir, but the main character is kind of like a hapless like kid who wants to be in the gang. But it's called Pigs and Battleships because essentially they're like stealing pork and selling it back to the <laughs> americans and stuff like that but it is all about exactly what you're saying like the, the sort of lawlessness of that era um the other the other one of the only other films also that i've seen is the the first film of the yakuza papers trilogy battles without honor or humanity uh has an opening scene set in the uh the rubble of the post-war and it's basically suggesting that like also the uh the moth the moth the the yakuza mafia rose up in that lawless period because there could be no official government they could basically insinuate themselves into every aspect of society at that time hmm. yeah so like like the part of the reason why i bring this up is just because if you have some even if you just have like a cursory understanding of japanese history purely through film there's like a there's a context that you understand in those scenes in tokyo that um Koichi and Noriko, like as they're building their domestic situation, is like reacting against, right? And the other movie that it reminded me of, honestly, was Grave of the Fireflies, because it is he he's comment um Yamazaki has commented about how Ghibli is like very influential to him mm-hmm. just in terms of storytelling. I can and, tell. Like, Even and, all the airplane stuff and all that. Exactly. Island has a bit of Porcarosa <laughs> to it and stuff. Yeah. 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 And and Grave of the Fireflies is this like unflinching depiction of Tokyo at that time period. And and specifically like Akiko is totally like a Grave of the Fireflies type character. This this orphan in the war. And just the way that the matter of fact um explanations are like once Noriko says it's like, oh, and Akio's mom is like on her, you know, as dying was like, take my care of my child. There's no there's no real questioning of like whether she should have said yes or not. It's just like, of course, I owe this to this person who like in their like last earthly wish asks me to take care of their child. So it, it invests so much in these characters and actually. I think that sequence after he comes back to Tokyo, you know, you have the initial um, conflict with his neighbor, Somiko, played by Sakurando, who's, I think, a very interesting character. She doesn't get a ton in this, but she's there's like a lot of texture and like a really good performance there about what her care for Aki. Because so she basically his neighbor has lost her children in the firebombing. And she's acting out her anger about the Americans devastating Tokyo on Koichi, who it's like, if only you had done your mission, we wouldn't have lost this war. If only I would have still had my kids, which it's completely beside the point. Of course, him killing himself, attacking a destroyer would have done nothing to save her children. But it's it's like it's a very like believable wartime um, 
for you know her, her placing her like anger from one to another like convenient target and stuff but the way that the relationship builds over time because it never it never develops into anything that's actually like openly friendly it's just we understand that she again places all of her like the love and care and attention that she used to have for her children onto Akiko and it's just this like idea of like if Japan is to survive this child has to thrive and so everything that matters is just about this child doing better and the the movie takes like a good patient 30 minutes to build this domestic scenario in a rebuilding tokyo which i think it's actually really clever how the movie flashes forward a little bit of time and you see Mm -hmm. the modest regrowth of the neighborhood right yeah Mm -hmm. it's not like it rapidly develops there's still a lot of garbage and like junk and like people are starting to build houses and gardens people are living and it, it builds a thing which is what makes it so devastating once Godzilla shows up in the city. And it is this kind of like, I thought we were over, you know, it it really does set up like, I thought we were over war. I thought we were over nukes. And then when he like finally unleashes the atomic breath in Tokyo, it's just, the movie literally like takes a moment to sit back and just watch this devastation and this atom bomb, like the camera tilts up to watch the cloud go up and all the people being like, my lord, like, I thought this was, like, a bad dream, but it's here now. Um, it's, just, it's just a nice sequence. I also like that sequence... Not only because it like you know it involves Noriko on the train and that the way that the set piece works is like very suspenseful, but it's also um, it's a clever means of the film using its limited resources for its advantage. It almost seems like it's using miniatures and stuff at moments, or like the way that the trains are acting and like um, Anders Anders mentioned early that this movie is very low budget. Like if you don't know, this movie costs fifteen million dollars. Like it's stunning it's, because it looks as good as like most like contemporary like Marvel or DC. It's like an indie movie. film budget for North America. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but I do like that's a good scene. I think for its emotional resonance and it pays off the amount of investment that we've had in the characters. But I do think the naval plotting and stuff like it's just very enjoyable watching them bring up a plan. We're going to talk through the plan. Let's execute the plan. The plan goes wrong. And then we have to pivot. It's just like, it's the whole oceans 11 thing. I always think of with Soderbergh where it's like, I'm going to talk you through the thing and you know, because I'm telling you what happens and I'm showing you what happens that it won't actually play out that way. And if there's a knowingness in the way it's presented, so it actually creates suspension being like, well, what's it's actually going to play out like, and then you actually see the real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, it's playing with expectation and the development of uh, scenes through those genre genre conventions. Um, one last thing, I just thinking about like the the formation of this sort of like new family that even uh, Koichi has to basically decide that he actually wants this and, and deserves this in a sense, right? Um, and, and a lot of films nowadays deal with these sort of what we might call the the chosen family or the, mm-hmm. the makeshift family that is, is formed out of people who don't have any any blood ties. But I think this film 
even and and the scenes when he has like his, his uh you know colleagues over for dinner and stuff like that and they're like what this isn't you know your son yeah this isn't your wife this isn't your child you're living with them what's wrong with it like because remember it's japanese society it's very exactly very strict cultural expectations but what it also then does is shows that those the value if we're really going to call friends and, and chosen family family then it has to transcend the sort of the free choice in a sense. And there has to be an aspect of duty and, uh, and, and mm. that it recuperates then that aspect of yeah. Japanese uh, filial, you know, piety and duty into this new context. And, and op- so there's, a, I don't know, is there something beautiful to me, but like, you know, we always want to like throw away the old or, or we want to close off anything new. Often those are the sort of dichotomies in, in culture that we, we kind of have this, this says there's value in these, these, virtues or, or uh, ways of living at the same time they're only they're they're best served by opening ourselves to others and yeah um, but still having a sense of duty and stuff so to me actually frankly it's like it's a very uh i don't know if it sounds horrible or not horrible it sounds uh it, you know belittling to say it's a very moral movie i think in a lot of ways it's dealing with uh a lot of those kinds of issues on, on many levels both from the the, the large scale of war down to the, the individual and the relationship with like others. So, so the, that's interesting because then the, his personal story then had parallels sort of the national story yes. because he, uh, Koichi has to choose not just to do his duty, but then it also has to be, um, an active like choice to, to pursue like new, like new aspects of life too. Like it's so it's like you've gone through the war and it's like, you know, his rejection of doing the kamikaze is is sort of saying like me fulfilling my duty, if it doesn't actually make any sense or have any purpose, like it's not it's not a good like duty or it's not it's not that's not actually fulfilling the responsibilities when it's like devoid of any purpose or meaning. But the movie's not it's not like a rejection of duty, right? It's more of like, how do you repurpose that? Because then, as you sort of said on the in the family dynamic, I think you're right that the movie, um, it it's not saying that he shouldn't feel this towards them through through living, you know, with them and what he owes them and all that sort of stuff. But then he also requires sort of choosing to embrace sort of um, the next stages. And that on the national level is kind of like the predicament of the of the nation then where it's like, yeah. You can't it now like you're at a point where you can't just do your duty anymore. And in fact, doing your duty to sort of this corrupt government, which the the film goes out of its way to point out, isn't with purpose. But what's the like, how are you going to choose what the next step is and what it tries to set forward as being sort of the purpose is kind of a newfound um, like community between the, the, the different Japanese people. Right. Like in, it's in that scene where like, you know, people are choosing to embrace the heroism and the sacrifice of like we're going to go do this mission and probably a bunch of us won't come back so it, it it's the film i think is thematically trying to combine it's not a rejection of duty but it's trying to combine duty with choice with um you know choosing the next stage and that sort of thing just on the topic of like the guys doing the right duty it this is not nearly as um thematic an examination here but i just want to pivot and talk about how much this movie loves christopher nolan's dunkirk and wants to be it the scene where um the young crewman shows so he basically there's 
Koichi joins a ship, the Minesweeper, and he becomes friends with the captain. There's the old doc, uh, scientist who was used to be a war engineer. And there's this young crewman who really wants to prove himself. And uh, Shiro. And he's just like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this and that. And he's like got a broken arm. And he's, they're like, no, we don't want you to like sacrifice. You have a life to live. That's going to be your duty. And then at like darkest moment, he shows up with like this whole fleet of you know merchant vessels like like private vessels again like people just coming yep. out to help and they're going to help t- all the tugs are going to come like yep. tug the destroyers to get godzilla under the water or like pull it up and it's just it's funny because it's one of those moments where it's so obvious what it's trying to do it's trying to do the moment in dunkirk where all the like fishermen's come over yep, the little what they the, the little boats fleet, the, the dinghies yeah, the and stuff right the little boat, the fleet where home shows up, so-called, right, in Dunkirk. And if you notice in the, the music of this movie, too, is also very Dunkirk. Because it's like atonal, like very somber tones that were just hit between the two, like those two like notes is just like an undercurrent. And then when Godzilla shows up, you get the timpani coming in, you get the drum theme, like and it like builds. But it's this kind of almost somber war um, theme that it works in with through Godzilla, but it just keeps this emotional undercurrent. But it's just funny that... I think Yamazaki, he's he's a smart enough filmmaker as a mainstream filmmaker to understand that, like, it worked for Nolan, it will work for me. You know what I mean? Like, too many filmmakers, I think, nowadays... Get, yeah, you're get, seeing the... the yeah. They get precious about being like, well, this is a great film, and I just want to... I'm going to do what the great film did, because it worked. <laughs> and it's not a matter of being derivative, because it's actually not, because he's specific enough in the setting, the character, the theme, and all that. So when he's doing, like a moment that is borrowed from another film it pays off really well because he's using a formula that's worked before but it's not like a hollow formula it's not like Mm -hmm. he's shortcutting something he's just borrowing something from another movie that works at that moment and you get many moments in this movie where you're just like you know it's either touching or exciting it's just it's just you're like you sit back you're like that didn't surprise me i knew it was coming but i'm happy it worked that way because it like it, yep. it satisfies my expectations and it fulfills the things I want out of this movie. That's interesting. The idea of like the lack of borrowing from other films in, in terms of close chronological proximity. Because I was rewatching um, uh, Two Towers and Return of the King, and I was like, you know, in 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 with the distance we have now, it's so obvious that Jackson is borrowing from from in terms of his combat sequences from Gladiator, which then it borrows from uh, Saving Private Ryan. And you're like, when you see those films in a, a, in the space of five years, right? 98 yep. to 2003, you're like, okay, this is a thing where people are seeing what works really well in another movie that just came out. And then they're going to be like, well, we're going to do it like that, right? We're going to have sort of a sort of shaky camera work in, in, in the combat sequences to convey this. And you're like, that was a good point with sort of like, why not borrow from someone like Bor- uh, like Nolan, who's, you know, someone working at the apex. You're like, if you want to do sort of another blockbuster movie, why aren't we doing this? Like that, that's, it's just a smart strategy, right? Like, and uh, frankly, I don't know. I think I've seen other guys online make this comment, but there's few things in a movie that's like as satisfying as like normal dudes being like, we're bringing our boats to do the work. Like, yeah, <laughs> the heroes yeah, coming yeah. in their boats. You're like, yes, yes, I want to stand up and be like, the guys are bringing their boats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cheer the screen. <laughs> Beautiful boaters. <laughs> yes. <I'm- laughs> okay, so Nolan as a um, a bridge to another topic. 
this movie, um, comparing it to Batman Begins perhaps explains why, while I really like this movie, I don't have this immense enthusiasm. And I, I just want to sort of explain what I mean by this. So I feel like for people who are really into kaiju movies or, you know, Godzilla movies, and there's way more Godzilla movies than I follow. But my sense reading some reviews online from just regular people is that this movie is kind of like when I watch Batman Begins. So someone really into Batman where you're like, ah, finally, like someone's making like a Godzilla movie that's like, it's treating the material seriously, but it's also, it understands Godzilla and it's just delivering on all those fronts. And, you know, that, that was sort of my experience with Batman Begins where you're like, with someone treating the material seriously, you're almost surprised, right? I can imagine someone who's like huge into Godzilla watching this movie, almost being surprised by how good, say, the the character scenes are you're like, well, like, you know, like this isn't the Godzilla movie, like these sequences we're getting earlier in the, the, the Japan, but because I'm not like, I'm just, I don't understand that tradition that well, that like, I feel like, well, I, you know, I quite like this movie, enjoyed it quite a bit. I feel like there's an enthusiasm gap I have that I just see out there by certain people who are very passionate about mm-hmm. the subject matter. And so I, it's the sort of thing where you're like, I think there's a segment of people out there who, if, like if you you know if you adore like the old Godzilla and if you've been hoping for like sort of a movie that delivers on this front I feel like this one seems to be doing that for a lot of people yeah and you know I think that there's been between this and Shin Godzilla uh, about what five or six years ago um, that's a couple of good Godzilla movies that have come out out of Japan recently that are more than just what people who grew up watching the old uh, yeah, series, guys in suits slugging each other. Um, that are actually compelled, really like just good movies, good dramas. And the thing I would say about this movie is, despite Anton, I think you're you're right that there's an enthusiasm that people who are big Godzilla people that I even I know really liked this movie a lot. Um, but also, I I don't I want to encourage people who might be like, I'm not. I don't like Godzilla. That's silly. I don't yeah. like that. You should check yeah. this movie yeah. out because do you like good action movies? Do you like movies that have a heart and he- tell a compelling human drama? Um, then you should watch this movie. Do you like World War II yeah. era yeah. like action? No, movies? like I actually, I actually, like, think, I, like um, I actually would recommend this to our dad. <laughs> like, yeah, um, or yeah, like, because he loves those kind of like you know world that era of like war movies and and but also like some drama and you know. So I, I just want to suggest that people who might not be into Godzilla should check this out. Yeah, like I think even if I convinced my my wife to just sit down and watch this, she would have come away and been like, "Oh, like that was pretty good." Mm-hmm. You know, um but what then I like I think you mentioned this sort of in your review, Aaron. But then the other side of it is that um and I think this is why the movie um feels a little bit like Spielberg, we've mentioned. So it's treating the material seriously. But it's not going in that, right? Like, I think, Aaron, you were sort of like the elevated horror dimension where it's like, you know, like, you know, where you're you're trying to treat it so artistically that it doesn't actually provide satisfaction within the sort of conventions of the genre and the tradition. So that's that's actually one of the also the accomplishments of this film is that it, it delivers in multiple ways and for people who are enthusiastic about it's not a slog it's still a fun movie yeah 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 it's not like they're like we're we're doing a godzilla as like an ultra serious post-war drama post-war drama and you know the family but i'm like it's also just a really entertaining movie yeah like it doesn't take itself 
it's not self-serious, even though it treats Godzilla seriously. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and I, but I also want to like before we we wrap up this conversation about Godzilla minus one, I I do want to point out that the movie does something refreshing, and I point out this in the review. It's it treats Godzilla as like an absolute evil monster. There's not a there's not a moment in this movie that it's like Godzilla's a hero, hero. or something misunderstood. Yeah, the or, misunderstood monster. Yeah, the only it's like had no. He's evil. He's an avatar evil. His eyes are demonic eyes. The way that they make his eyes in this movie are actually really creepy. And anytime he shows up, it's just like pure rage. And it's I really, it doesn't need to be I really like the Godzilla design. So what do you movie, make of what do you make of that? Like, is there any sort of deeper meaning to that? Like, is it just the is it just the the sort of the him being a symbol of kind of all that's horrible about war? Is it or is it that war also reflects sort of this primordial aspect within I mean sort of the, the fran- human frankly the way his eyes look reminds me of um on like when when you go into like a temple in Japan, there's like two Oni, two the demons, yeah, yeah. the demons oh, that yeah. guard yeah. the gate. They have that like yeah, they have that like sort of like angry like, and they don't blink. Like it's on, like the idea the that their eyes are on you at all times. Yeah, the you brow. You cannot hide. If you pass through the gate, they will see you, right? Yeah. And it's this idea mm. that he's this like all watching avatar of death and like you will not escape him. He is eyes on you and he's going to get you. And I think there's something there in the design, honestly, that it it's, yep. it's drawn on classical Japanese things. But it's also just the way that they've de- decided to design him is that he is much less um, kind of like terrestrial in this. He's not huge, but he actually seems like supernatural almost like the way he acts. Yeah. <laughs> I when think they first right. encounter like him on the island, though, he's a bit more like a T-Rex. He is, but and then, then he, when he mutates, he's... Yeah, he mutates because yeah. the nuclear bomb yeah. detonates the bikini atoll and, like, supercharges but, him. But then the bomb almost makes him, right, like, he becomes then more of, like, sort of a supernatural demon than he yes. is. Then, then a sort of believable, like, prehistoric creature right, that's exactly. been, like, reawoken, yeah, totally. right? Because one of the things that the, the old gods... But it combines it within I, the story, yeah. those two ideas. I've been... Yes. Sometimes the designs of newer Godzillas do make them too lizard-like and or like dinosaur. Yes, right? and in the American in 1998, yeah, that's he's totally a T Rex, where it's from, just purely kind yeah, of yeah, a giant T Rex from Jurassic Park. But um, if he had a Habsburg jaw, <laughs> but the <laughs> the royal jaw, because he we'll, he's, we'll he's circle a, back to 1998. Yeah. But the um, the thing about that this design does really well is it also brings in a little bit of like the look of him in a, a man in a suit where he almost has yeah, like pectoral, I totally pectoral, saw that too. the pectoral muscles and like he's like but little arms right like he's yeah. like but it they've managed somehow to make him scary and compelling as a creature design without without looking silly still paying homage to the original he looks like Godzilla he, you're like oh that's the same monster from the old 54 yep. film yeah. I think one of the really smart things is having the the fact that when he charges up his atomic breath, each slot of his spine moves out as like a different yeah, like cog. It's really those creepy, are cool. and so it shows again like a you know a visual representation of the charge of his power. But then it also is almost like he's like turning into some kind of like mountain or something, right? Like it's like something like prim- like truly like crystals be- and like yeah. Yeah, beyond like animal. It's elemental. like primordial, elemental, yes. And he's just building up and he's going to unleash this. And then it serves a useful purpose within the storytelling of an action sequence where you anticipate 
that the giant explosion is coming because you can start to see um, the you him know charging up. yeah him charging up slowly right like so it creates this the suspense in the in the sequence also just like the way he lumbers around is I couldn't help but think of um, like Ray Harryhausen Titans in old like stop motion mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that yeah. like the just the conceptions of like Greek Titans within storytelling right is these almost giant avatars that are unmovable <laughs> but it also gives the impression of a aquatic animal moving onto land yeah right? he's very awkward yeah. on land and it's kind of like, like i don't know like a I, I, i'm happy that he's not like more seamless but it is like a little awkward but it's one of those things where you're like yeah he's still godzilla he's still like a little yeah. funny with the short arms <laughs> no it's 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 a good movie it's it's honestly like mm-hmm. a surprisingly good movie as my my friend jay luke mentioned he's like I never thought I, I I wouldn't go this far, but like his comment was like, I never thought it like a uh, Godzilla movie would make me want to cry. <laughs> You're like, this, this is, <laughs> yeah, but there are moments that I almost did. Yeah. It's like, no, it's a very, it, it tugs the heart strings. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 and which is a proof of the fact that it hits its storytelling beats very well. Um, so I'm not really surprised that it's this kind of remarkable foreign language hit at the box office. Um, people don't ever talk about this, but like foreign films don't really make money in North America. And the most recent one that people really talked about was parasite parasite made like 50 something million, which was, yep. it's a pretty big deal. And then one best, picture, what, so what's this, became, this is past 50 million. This is the really? most, the highest grossing Godzilla movie from the Japanese ones. It's like the highest grossing foreign language film since parasite. And if you go back, it's the, those two are the highest since like crouching tiger, hidden dragon. So it's like, Oh wow. A remarkably a high hit, grossing yeah movie the other one and this is not part of the conversation but the other movie that's made a significant amount of money in um north america that nobody's talking about is boy and the heron which is far and away yeah. the highest grossing ghibli film oh. <laughs> when i went to see it at the theater here in waterloo at the princess cinema before christmas uh that first week there were lines down the block it was sold out every night yeah like well, it's it's that i think people underestimate how much a average viewer will be like i yeah i'm curious i've heard this godzilla movie is good i'll actually watch it and the foreign language is not a barrier or like you know with ghibli it's like hayao Miyazaki's actually a household name yeah yep. and, 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 and streaming has only helped that streaming has only helped yeah, with netflix the, the prevalence on netflix and yeah on, well yep. fun fact about uh, boy in the heron is that the reason that they licensed out to netflix is that that's what paid for the boy in the heron because Toshio hmm. Suzuki was like, we can't afford this movie. It's going to take way longer because of COVID and price and costs and stuff. And he he convinced Miyazaki to put it on streaming. Miyazaki did not comprehend what the concept of streaming was. He didn't know what it is. But Suzuki's like, it's a, it's a bull. It's like we should do this. It will expand like our audience, but also will make us a lot of good residual money. And so that's the fact that you can watch Porco Rosso on Netflix is why The Boy and the Heron was made. They paid for it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. If, on top if, of that, I think that the fact that Ghibli has though a dub and with big Hollywood stars does also increase the access. So like children and people who might normally not watch subtitles would go. Yeah. The G kids, G kids does a very good version, uh, job of doing their North American English language yeah. releases. When I saw boy in the heron, it was in the dub. Cause I went with the couple families with kids. All of us. So, Oh, isn't it Robert? You enjoy Robert Pattinson yeah. as the Heron. Yeah, <laughs> I only watched. The, I saw the Japanese in theaters. So, anyways, um, there's a lot of good Japanese movies out, but Godzilla minus one, 
even if you're skeptical about Godzilla movies, I truly do think you will enjoy this movie as just like a rock solid blockbuster. When I found you in the wreckage of that ship, I considered leaving you. I was afraid you could bring trouble to us. What do you think they want? Everything. Godzilla Minus One is kind of an interesting counterpoint because it is an example of tried and true forms of blockbuster storytelling, right? It is um, classical-ish. It's a classical story because it's Godzilla. It's going back to like classic stuff there but it's also taking cues from things like jaws and like more um established classics within the genre to to get across the story and it's a theatrical success right it's <laughs> comparing it to uh zach snyder's uh rebel moon a child of fire part one which is a hilariously long title as anton pointed out in his review it, um, sorry but, is it child of fire part one not part no, it's one part child one. Of fire. Oh, part child one child of fire you oh. gotta think of it as part two is gonna be this whatever one in april may yeah. it doesn't matter Scarred. it's rebel moon one and two but yeah <laughs> I, th- I feel like the fact that i messed it up is kind of proof of the fact that it's unwieldy um <laughs> regardless it, it is a perfect example of the emergent form of the blockbuster, right? It is a big director, big Hollywood director, big cast, big budget. They shelled out like 200 million for it. For both. Yeah, for both. But he filmed the yeah. back to, as one movie, right? Yep. It's like a four-hour movie and he filmed them both. But that's still... That's yeah, still it's a big budget. It's their most expen- It's one of their most expensive movies. I think it might be Netflix's individual... No, I think Red Notice is still their most expensive. But one of their most... Red Notice is that movie that doesn't what exist movie? with Joanne Johnson and Gal Gadot <laughs> that like, nobody it. watched. No, I'm just joking. I heard no. of it, never watched it. Um, but it's a movie that like, there's no real determiner of whether it's successful or not, right? There's no box office. Mm-hmm. And so all we're left with is the movie. And the movie itself is, is kind of baffling. Um, we're all, honestly, like we're all big Zack Snyder fans. Yeah, Especially yes, compared to retrospective. Yeah, in 2019. I even I like Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yeah. Come on. Me and Anders think Batman and Superman is like the best superhero movie since Nolan concluded his trilogy. Anton is a is a big, big fan of Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm rethinking my uh like I liked Sucker Punch, and I'm probably if I rewatch it again, I might even like it even more. <laughs> I actually think Rebel Moon has some interesting similarities to Sucker Punch for the same reasons that I wrote in my review that I don't really like it. <laughs> yeah, but but Rebel Moon is him. Att- so we all the story's pretty familiar if you follow anything about movie news. He pitched this as a Star Wars movie. It's essentially, and he also back in like 2007, 2008 pitched this samurai version of a seven like an anime version of seven Sci-fi. samurai. And if this is this is seven samurai and star wars and he's smashing them together into his own space opera and he wants to create a franchise on netflix the fact of the matter is though is that the movie is as derivative as it sounds it's like it is let's just take the components of a new hope it's the exact same plot and seven samurai and we're just like there's no elements that are new it's just the (laughs) it's just imagine if like luke and and han 
ha- and an Obi-Wan character have to go and get some other fighters to help protect a village who need to give money to some like, yeah, you're right. like Charlie Hunnam is yeah, they, they got to defend yeah. like the Lars farm. You know? Yeah. And I'm not like opposed to derivative stuff. I really am not. We just talked about how a, a Godzilla movie is awesome because it borrows from Jaws and it borrows from the old Godzilla stuff and it borrows from all these other elements. But this movie, I watched it last night and I don't really remember anything about it except for the <laughs> fact that like most of the movie's out of focus. <laughs> Please, Zach, stop being your own Yeah, stop being your own DP. Go back and get the dude. I forget his name. I'll look it up in a moment. I'll correct. But like the guy who did Watchmen and stuff, like it's a really good DP. It's a really good DP. Just go work with him again because I people who who drag on the slow-mo speed ramp stuff, that's the good stuff in this. The action yeah. of her like pulling out guns and like and blowing guys' heads off, Sophia Batala, like her being like this badass secret warrior kind of Jedi figure. Yeah, the scene in the barn is cool. pretty good action scene. It's cool. But the plot of the movie is like it reminded me more of Jupiter Ascending than it did of even the non-Star <laughs> Wars movies yeah. that I like, like John Carter and Valerian, which those are movies that I'm like, these are sweet. They're not Star Wars, but these are but those movies fun, have imagination. imaginative films. So, so Anders, the, yeah, so my review, my from Anders. out there, right? Like, so I'm, I, I didn't like the movie, yeah, but I but, feel like I'm, you know, uh, mildly warm on aspects of it. Anders, I, I want to be, I want to like that. We, we love that. I like this movie, but I like just did not really like this movie at all. <laughs> because I think, as you say, Aaron, like if you've told me on paper, someone's like do a Star Wars Seven Samurai mashup. Sounds and awesome. beats were relatively the same. I'm like, I'm down. I, I could totally imagine that. But this is like if and someone who didn't really understand what made those movies good just picked the elements <laughs> and, and put them together. Or they understood certain things about it. And they so Zack Snyder does, and this is the same thing with Sucker Punch. He gets the appeal of the fan, these fan uh, culture properties and things like that. But he kind of thinks that he can like, put them together in a coherent way that doesn't really work it's like i there was moments in this film the same way as like soccer punch where i'm like wait a minute that and i'm not talking about being a plausible here like trying to say that there's like plot holes or things like that no it's more like it just literally doesn't make sense so like a scene here i'll pick one scene there's a scene in this movie where a character yeah but there's a scene in this movie where a character has to tame and ride a flying beast right um and we've seen scenes like this in other movies. Most recently, the one that I, of course, I'll have to compare it against is in Avatar. Both yes, Avatar yes. and Way of Water. Because Way of Water repeats it because it has... It's so uh, interesting in it, right? But in those movies, like, it makes sense. Like, even if it's cliched that he's going to, like, learn to tame the tooth. Here, we have this character, was it Tarek or whatever his name is? He was like, yeah, Tarek. I'm not really clear why he has this conne- connection with the beast right this it's, it's like because kind of like a bird he's cat. not white that's why like that's almost <laughs> like, it's the implicit. It just, now it's like ooh, i don't know man but like so he like he does the thing like from jurassic world where he like holds out his hand and then somehow like the animal sort of like understands it's not going to attack him okay then he jumps on the beast but then for some reason it's trying to get him off and like smashing him against rocks i'm like why is if it already sort of had this mental connection with him why is it doing that it, none of it makes any sense no, but, and then he does but, all this like flying around the, stuff and, like but the best honestly, part is that it turns out that that entire sequence is was about- irrelevant no, no, the, no, it, goading. 
the payoff is that it was like a fake out. Yeah, that he'll eat the, the bad guy. owner jumps on it and then he kills him. Yeah. It's a good. I was hoping that would happen. It happened. So the whole but thing was actually kind of just like a bad Pointless. Joke. Pointless. It's just like it's like some but there's moments where like he understands like the kind of beats and expectations of how you would do that scene, but in the context of all of the things that we've just said, it doesn't really work at all. Like, and on top of that, it looks kind of terrible. Oh, so, like, there's, like, lots of mo- there's lots of moments like that yeah. in the movie that are, they could be kind of cool. And, you know, funny enough, Anton, based on your review, the, the one part that I actually thought, if you wanted to know, I'll, I'll be generous. The one thing that I actually thought was enjoyable in that sort of goofy way that I like things in, in certain other films, like even Fifth Element or Valerian, speaking of like Euro fantasy and stuff like that is the uh the space mennonites crystal <laughs> yeah they're great <laughs> they're just too funny like it's like this is totally zach snyder they're like buff dudes who are like <laughs> into like having like uh you know sexual like freedom and things like that but like we were also good hard-working like farm guys this is like so bizarre <laughs> but i i found them kind of funny but like even the way like when the uh <clears throat> the the villain comes to their their uh, village for the first time it's like everything's so like mechanical and like how they like transition from moment to moment is is i i I just i couldn't take the film seriously but not not in a like that i wanted to like i can have fun with a really like goofy movie but it ended up being like like you aaron i kind of like just tuned out what was even happening at certain points i'm like again like when they meet the one uh one character uh, who then they then they fight the general and spider character and stuff like that. I didn't understand the character motivations why of any of these spider? people. Like, why are they doing it? And why do they suddenly in the end then decide to, like it just there's like either it's like a throwaway line or like things change. Like it just they they go through these beats because they have to, not because it like comes together in any kind of way. So, so it, like it I found the film really like a slog to watch. Honestly, it, I I think it really shows. Like I think it's the final proof that like, you know, we, we, in 2021, we did our Zack Snyder retrospective and we're all, we probably all far more admirers of him than most people. But like, it's very clear now, if you look at the ones, his weakest films, it's like Zack Snyder's best when he's using someone else's like um, properties, stories, conventions, and then doing his own sort of version with that rather than, him trying to just sort of create a uh, a sort of general story within sort of general patterns of fandom and geekdom. Yeah, like I, this is the very argument why I like Batman Superman more than I like Watchmen. And I Watchmen's one of my favorite of his, but I actually think that when you have the actual heroes that he is now playing with and using his stylistic things to comment upon it actually like registers better because it's like, he's just going straight to the source and now he's playing with the actual toys that like Moore was talking, playing with. Like, you know, yeah, like, exactly. That's what I said in my review that like Alan Moore wanted originally to actually use the Charlton comic yeah. characters. Right. But they said, no, don't do it. Cause we might use them in, you know, other things. So like night owl was supposed to be blue beetle originally. Like, yeah. And probably also then he, you know, I think Zack Snyder probably also needs, like a solid um, screenwriter. Yeah. There's a few other people on the credits for this, but I know he's involved. But we need Chris Terrio. Well, you know, it will Terrio and him have a good Oscar have a winning good Chris Terrio. They, they work. They work well together. Like you Rise need Skywalker's Chris Terrio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need like you know. So 
it's still, just I still it, like it. It's kind of it's a wild movie. I just don't really understand. Yeah, yeah I here's the thing. It's a shame because I wanted to kind of I was kind of excited for it when I heard about it. I did. I was too. Yeah, when I was like a Zack Snyder space opera on Netflix, sounds good. But so much of this movie is like really perfunctory too. And I was really disappointed in the climax because I knew it was half a movie, but the climax is just so lame. It's just like, yeah, Charlie Hunnam decides I'm actually a bad guy. And then you're like, I'm supposed to be like shocked. And then you have Ray Fisher, who I think is great in Justice League. Like he's yeah. really good as cyborg. Yeah, in the Snyder cut of Justice League, it's like this, this like we discovered this like performance that was latent in the, in the footage, and yeah. then here it's just. But here it's just like when statuesque, like when, it's just no. But it's like when the rebel characters show up, I was like, <laughs> I just started laughing because I was like, wait, you actually designed like. These are the rebels against the Imperium. And of course, the Imperium have to look like a bunch of Nazis. Like, it's just at this point, it was, I I think, yeah, last night when I was watching this movie, right early on when the Ed Screen and his folks just first showed up on the planet, I texted being like, I appreciate that Dune leaned into the fact with the designs to be like, we'll have the good guys have these military outfits and stuff. And like, we're not going to like, we're not going to like, um, lean into like old conventions we're just gonna you know they're a very military society they're aristocratic they're gonna dress like aristocratic military society Mm -hmm. like and the atreides are the ones who dress more like the imperials in star wars than the harkonnens do right the harkonnens dress otherwise but in this movie you know he shows up it's like oh of course the bad guys have to be some form of space fascist and then it goes one step further where it's like okay what does freedom look like to you i know it's a bunch of guys in dreads it's well, it reminded me of it's like he tried to do like his version of uh, the Matrix Zion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's it's so late, and it it it's the first time in a while where I watched a movie, and I was like, "Can we please have an some interesting sci-fi design in a movie that's not derivative?" And like, I don't care if the story is derivative. I don't care if it's inspired by other things and it's playing off of other elements of films. That's everything. But just give me a design that is not like either like it's trying to be a a spaceship that's trying to be the millennium falcon or a a mystical character that's trying to be a jedi like just can i get something that is different and i think this might have registered extra because currently i'm reading dan simmons hyperion which is a very good sci-fi novel from like 1990 hugo winnie novel it's kind of like uh, canterbury tales in space and it's a novel that like has truly outlandish descriptions of the world and the character but it's so interesting uh, characters and stuff in it that it's so interesting that i was just like i don't think cinema i think cinema kind of stalled on its way of portraying sci-fi and it hasn't like actually tapped into all the stuff that's there in the literature in terms yeah. of its imaginative potential and it's why mm. i give up is a- it doing anything since like the 80s like, no but that's why original- i think i will give a pass to stuff like valerian like valerian is very visually like surprising and interesting and it's but that's stuff- because valerian is also based on a pre-existing comic that was written yeah in, mobius uh, and stuff right right yeah but but there's a whole series is, in France. But this is also one of the main reasons why Avatar is so good. 
yeah. is like it it pays so much attention to the visual element of the storytelling where it's like what is the thing that is going to convey the most um important aspects of a sci-fi world is that visceral element that the audience takes out of it so it's like it has to look not just credible it has to look mind-blowing or else people aren't going to like actually take it in and I, the more distance we get from 2009, the more I feel like Pandora is this actually people complained about it is like, it's derivative. It's like, it's the rainforest combined with Ferngali combined with this. And it's like, no, Pandora is one of the great sci-fi creations because it seems real. It seems fully fleshed out a, like a genuine real sci-fi world. That's credible when you look at it. And that's something that I be, I'm begging for certain these sci-fi movies um, it's why partially why I love Dune so much because it's it's depiction of Arrakis is like so incredibly detailed <laughs> and it's strange it's you know Villeneuve leaned into the fact yeah, that is very strange that Frank Herbert's depiction of a sci-fi world is like bizarre and mm-hmm. he doesn't go into a David Lynch style of being like I'm gonna play up the um, disgusting or like absurd yeah. bastardizations of this material yeah it's not grotesque but it is strange defamiliar it is a truly alien world without aliens in it rebel moon is none of that rebel moon is familiar rebel moon's safe um there's aspects of it that's enjoyable i don't even dislike the performances like i like charlie hunnam i like they're kind of funny actors i did i got a I kick like, out of the fact that there's like at least three actors from game of thrones two of which both played dario naharis yeah <laughs> it's grand and michael and Hazner is also uh yeah and also you know anton your your hilarious comment in uh your review where it's like they did the happy coincidence of finding simon hansu from gladiator on a gladiator world it's <laughs> <laughs> But I'm doing not much else. But Zimon Hansu. Hansu's uh, awesome. He's a cool actor. Yeah, no, I want more of him. He deserves more. Yeah. I, I just recently watched Gran Turismo. He gets to play father oh, of the he's character. Oh. He's the dad. Oh. Yeah. The dad whose dream of being uh, who was a like semi pro uh, soccer player, and he want he wants his son to play soccer, play a real is, sport. Is he in Gladiator too? Oh, I don't know. But oh, I, I, most I don't know. He might be. Most I, I, I mean, like really knows the boy. I'm the very boy, pumped. Right? I'm, I'm very pumped. pumped. Yeah. Paul Miscall. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But they're not doing the the completely insane uh, Nick Cage. No. Script. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is I didn't even realize. Is this true that Denzel's in Gladiator Two? Yeah. Apparently. That's absurd. <laughs> I didn't even know that until right now. And Pedro Pascal too. <laughs> yeah, Pedro Pascal. Um, Derek Jacoby again is back as the senator. Yeah, Brockers. and Connie Nielsen returning as the mother. Yeah. How old is Derek Jacoby? He's what? pretty old. Pretty old. Oh man, yeah. Derek Jacoby is eighty-five. I man, I always think of I love Derek how Jacobi. much I love the opening of Henry V of him as the chorus, and then he opens up the studio onto the battlefield. Kindly to judge. Our play. Man, so maybe maybe everybody should just take a break from sci-fi and just start making Shakespeare adaptations again, but like big budget ones. <laughs> what a sci-fi Shakespeare adaptation! <laughs> yeah, what, what if we had what if we had um, some kind of tentacle fetish and <laughs> and like threats of uh, man on man rape and we could work that in and. <laughs> 
like the Snyder version of like the number one line. That Snyder number one line in this movie. Oh. Uh, the cantina scene. I was actually I was almost <laughs> appalled because it's it's almost shot for shot. Like it's it was the getting there's aspects of it is absurd. Of, there's as, aspects of Rebel Moon which remind me of like the worst aspects of the uh like the star trek movies <laughs> like when anytime like the star which like i love a lot of the star trek search movies, for spock they... where he goes to oh restricted <laughs> exactly when they're when those movies are trying to slip into trying to be star wars and they got like really lame and they had their own version of the space cantina and you're just like oh guys plus and it, what, we, it, what know, we also really need is if we're doing a fan dance is what we really <laughs> no that's the good stuff <laughs> I, I'm not, I need to revisit uh, Final Frontier. I don't think Final Frontier is like nearly as bad as people say, but it's not like good. When we, I remember. I, I have a lot of fond memories of watching it. Yeah, I still. Wait, whenever I go, camping, what does God to... need with a starship? <laughs> but when you can anyway. in Rebel Moon does does like it, to to demonstrate also like the movie's sort of lack of coherence and lack of a sense of like the overall world. Like when they arrive at the planet. And then there's sort of the alien uh, spider played by Jenna Malone, <laughs> who's kidnapping children. Yeah. I actually was like, wait a second, there are aliens in this universe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't realize up until that point that there were aliens. And you're like, it has a weird inconsistency of like, so is yeah, this exactly, like a Star totally. Wars world where there's a lot of aliens and there's a lot of people? Or is this like a Dune future where it's just like humans like spread out over the galaxy? But humans have gotten really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Or the, I mean, the one great success in the movie is is uh, Anthony Hopkins is the weird like night robot who for some reason is thinking back to a king <laughs> from like centuries past that he served, and then has the moment in the river where he's just like kind of like thinking about like his flowers on his head, and you're like, what is this? I did enjoy that actually, because <laughs> I I really like movies that have Anthony Hopkins as a robot in them. But okay, let me transition for one second here. Just thinking about like the possibilities of Netflix money. By no means am I saying that the movie I'm about to mention is a good movie, but it speaks to the director's like interest and ability to deliver, which is Six Underground by Michael Bay, has great action scenes. It is a completely derivative Ryan Reynolds vehicle, but it has, but it also has some imagination. I mean, those cool like magnet things and stuff like. Oh that. no, it's great! But, great like, so like, it's a movie that like it. It's all the it. It's strong in a lot of the ways that I think Rebel Moon's not. Even though like most people would be like, this is like derivative, yeah, yeah. derivative, and also like you know just tr- kind of trashy. But like Michael Bay was able to bring his strengths to that in a way for some reason that Snyder. I don't know. It's I don't know if it's even overreaching. I don't. I just can't really get a feel is. for it. Like I actually, I actually think Army of the Dead was better than this. I think Snyder could do a space opera. I honestly think. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He's proven it in parts of like Justice League, especially. I think. Yeah. And you know, I actually kind of. I think I was the most positive on Army of the Dead of the three of us because I liked the mythos. It. The thing. That's the other aspect is that this movie spends a lot of time Zombie trying to build up. It tries to build up a backstory that is like mythic about this imperial training and her like her her whole like tragic past and and stuff and it's it Anders you made a comment about like Riddick and it it made me wish for the like coolness of the um 
the necromongers in Riddick. Where yeah. it, it honestly I, did. <laughs> I hate to say I hate to say it, but like, wow, my 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 sarcastic Netflix or a letterbox review of rebel moon was I take back all the bad things I said about. Yeah, you should, because the Riddick trilogy is good and I'm excited for Furia, the fourth one. It's going to be sweet. It's it. I love Vin Diesel in the fast and furious movies, but the Riddick ones are his best like blockbuster role. Um, And the Riddick movies are actually a really good, they're actually a good comp comp for this because the Riddick movies are, Films that understand genre really well and play to it because Pitch Black plays as a like prison escape crap. It's like a Flight of the Phoenix type thing, but makes mm-hmm. a prison movie. Um, Chronicles of the Riddick is the insane space opera, but it actually creates a comprehensive and and engrossing mythos for what this universe is even if it's absurd in like moment to moment to the point that they were able to make a spin-off video game escape from butcher bay which was a great video that game. Was a great <laughs> game video game and then riddick the third one is like a western it's like a good bounty hunter like western movie and the first 30 minutes of the movie is like essentially silent of just like riddick trying to survive in this world it's just that that's a thing of um snyder is without a doubt, a more talented, like visual stylist than David Tui. <laughs> like there's no question about it. And I think actually his cast is better than those movies too, but it's just Snyder seems almost like too enamored of the intended emotional effect of his filmmaking that he's like, he's jumping steps to be like, well, somebody's going to think this is this and it's so badass. Or they're going to be like, this is such an like amazing moving moment. And it's like, dude, you got to like actually construct the stuff underneath it, a foundation of story that like can earn that moment. You can't just like skip to it. <laughs> and that's the, my thing with problem. Moon. despite a movie that I thought was, um, yeah, way too long for what it is. It, seem to like kind of just skip to the next part and it's like we're just gonna yeah. do the next space opera scene to the next space opera scene and just keep going i mean i guess i guess uh come any last april we'll be doing uh defenses or, or like do you think that part, <laughs> that two, part two could actually episode? recuperate things i i think that to me part two isn't going to have a major uh impact on how i view the first one because my issues are not about like aspects of the story that will oh. be filled in and things like that it's more just the fundamental form and function of, of the film as it could tell a more it. coherent it could be a yeah, more but coherent I'll, yeah I'll, I'll i'll have to check it out but yeah well i do love to gamble here we go what's the bet if Terry can break that creature out there his debts are squared with me but if you don't write him you all Get a chain and a shackle. That's the deal. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>